Hello, welcome to the Science of Footy podcast. As always, you're here with your hosts Liam and Bill. Welcome back, Bill. Yeah, cheers, Lee. I'm uh, not doing too well this week, though. I've been knocked out of our Supercoach Draft League in straight sets. Um, I've had a few injuries there and, yeah, just, just couldn't pull through. So, full depressing won't be getting the glorious cup that we have in our Draft League this year. Yeah. I'm still in it myself with uh, the, the Final Four. Yeah, that's it. I'm down to the Final Four. No longer a chance, as you mentioned, quite a glorious cup that we have. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad times. Sad times for Billy. Sad times for you, but it's a bit better for the... For the football league as a whole, we had one of the uh, best rounds of footy anyone can really remember. Yeah, a lot of uh, close games this week. Um, I believe a league record, five games were decided by under a goal. Um, one of them, the Lions game. And uh, yeah, that one not so great, but great to have some great games of footy and uh, nice close ones for everyone to enjoy. Yeah, and it was funny that it was all sort of at the start of the round. So I think it was like those first like friday and saturday games were all the close ones and we had some blowouts on the sunday but uh got to enjoy some very close football there we had the tigers and geelong going three points to the tigers we had four points in that match where the hawks got over the dons three points north over brizzy showdown went three points to the crows and two points the swans got over the pies that's it's a host of really close games that really had really exciting finishes where there was probably a few crucial moments in each of those games. Um, do you have any that, that you watched there and any that you saw the close finishes? Yeah, obviously the the Lions game managed to catch that close finish with uh, Cam Rayner having the shot to win. Um, pretty disappointing for him there. And then the Geelong Tigers game as well on the Friday night, we managed to catch that one together. Um, yeah, cracking game that one as well. So Rayner, should he have taken the drop punt? He ran around and did the the snap from about 25 out on the angle should he have backed himself to kick kick the shot as a regular walk up not really sure he's kicked a few from that uh, sort of position earlier in the game I believe one as well as one last week um, seems to be his go-to from those sort of positions I think the main thing was just taking your time he took it quite quickly and that's something that I heard Chris Fagan talking about earlier today and something the boys have spoke about um yeah just sort of taking your time in those situations something they're going to learn from yeah, I did see after the match as well a video of Fagan walking off the ground with Rayner sort of in an arm around him, sort of talking to him the whole way off. So that's definitely good to see as a development style coach there from Fagan, really going up to Rayner, who obviously was a bit distressed after missing the game winner and sort of just telling him that, you know, you'll get it next time you've put in the hard work and all of those sort of words. Yeah, definitely something I'm sure Cam will learn from. Um, he seems to be popping up in quite a few uh, end-of-game sort of match-winning scenarios there and uh, almost gave himself another chance with a, an almost mark at the end there. Um, there's a few other, as we mentioned, close finishes and a few other misses as well. Gary Ablett had one um, that you'd imagine he'd kick most of the time. Yeah, he came out and said during the week that, you know, I'd kick that more often than I wouldn't. He had it going uh, right side of the 50, streaming in about 40 out and just didn't even get close to kicking that goal. It's Really, just it was one of those matches that had a lot of turning points, but that seemed to be the one where the Cats could have could have grabbed it. We had a bit of controversy in the showdown with Josh Jenkins' uh, goal that could have been a point there. Looks like it brushed the post, perhaps. Yeah, he came out and said, "My grandma told me, you know, not to tell Fib, so I'll come out and say that I hit the post there." I reckon it was a point, and it was called a goal. It went up to the goal review, and they said there wasn't conclusive evidence to overthrow it. So. You know, it's it, that's one of those games that went so down to the wire that it was down to a video replay to decide who won it. What do you think of the goal review system if it's not able to sort of pick up those important differences at the end? Do you think it's still doing its job and getting a lot of good decisions turned in the right way? Or do you think that if it's something that sort of they couldn't even pick this up when the player knew he kicked the point, uh, it's not worth having in our game? 
Yeah, it just obviously depends on what sort of camera angles they're able to get. Um, they're obviously overturning some decisions with it, so it has some use there. And yeah, we obviously can't expect these sort of things to be perfect. I don't think there's any reason to get rid of it. We saw a fantastic game, game of the round, and one that our model was really struggling to tip last week, and it did go down to the wire between Hawthorne and Essendon, where we pretty much saw the game was pretty much sealed up before a goal by Collier on the run with about you know a couple of couple of seconds left that almost gave Essendon a chance to win it, but couldn't get that final clearance. Um, did you catch any of the Essendon Hawthorne game, and um, did you see how close it was? Unfortunately, wasn't able to catch any of this game live. I focused on the. The Lions playing North there roughly the same time, but it looks like a cracker. Um, scores almost identical as well, 107 to 103 versus 107 to 104 mm. um, in the next game, which is another little interesting stat there. It was one of those games where I thought Essendon was going to pull away. They got about three goals up, and then Hawthorne drew it back, and Essendon got three goals up, and then they drew it back again, and um, just couldn't really put them away in early in the match, and that let a great team like Hawthorne get back on top when it mattered there at the end. In the fifth and final close game we had for the round, uh, your boy Liam, Tom McCartan, not Paddy, but Tom McCartan's kicked the winning goal. Yeah, if you told me McCartan kicks the game-winning goal, I'd be uh, extremely excited normally, but this was Tom on this occasion kicking one out of congestion on his back there. It was a really crazy goal, actually, probably one of the better game-winners you'll see, and to have a, a young key position player who was thought to be a bit of a you know, a project player, someone that they thought was young and would take a long time to get into the team. He's stepped up and really been fantastic this year and he's been able to put a game winner to his record there as well. Yeah, great news for Tom, who was actually having a bit of a dirty day until then. Um, didn't manage to register a stat until halfway through the third quarter and then obviously to find himself in the right spot at the right time and then to kick that goal is uh, yeah, great news for a young key position player, as you mentioned. So what do you make of, we've had all the talk in the recent weeks that we need all these rule changes, that our game is broken and it needs changing. Do you think that this round changes other people's opinions on that, seeing such great footy being played with the rules that we currently have in place? Yeah, good timing, I think, to see a, you know, a round like this where it's lots of close competitive footy. Um, I don't think it'll change any decisions for the AFL. I think they've already decided what rules they want to bring in. Um, they're going through this trialing process that's now going to be through the VFL and... Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's sort of a, a foregone conclusion what rule changes we'll see next season. On Sunday, we sort of had a lot of blowout matches there. We saw the Giants smashing Carlton, the Demons smashing the Suns, and the Eagles putting the Dockers away. Were they all games that we all expected to go like this? Yeah, I think so. Maybe thought that uh, the showdown might be a little bit closer, had the potential there. Um, those games sometimes go can go either way regardless of of prior form and all that, but uh, Eagles were able to get it done pretty easily in the end. Um, and yeah, the other two games we were pretty talked about last week that we we're pretty much expecting some blowouts there. There was one interesting bit of uh, news that came out of the derby there between the Eagles and Freo, the Andrew Gaff punch. Um, I'm sure you've seen the footage. Yeah, I have. Um, you have to imagine that he's looking at around about the same sort of weeks as a Tom Bug or, or um, Barry Hall, uh, Jeremy Cameron from earlier in the year. So, you're looking at something like five, six, seven weeks for that one, I think. Yeah, he was sent straight to the tribunal, so high contact, uh, intentional, and the severe impact there. So minimum of three weeks when you go to the tribunal, and um, we expect it to be well up from that. I think that's as bad as what we've seen with Barry Hall punching Staker, which was seven weeks, and I think that was downgraded with a guilty plea. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see eight, nine, ten here for Gaff. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Um, we've got what, three more rounds to play this year and then uh, finals for West Coast, I would imagine. And yeah, it looks like Gaff will be starting off next year with a bit of a suspension as well. 
So we saw Brayshaw's medical report this week saying that he's got a broken jaw and three dislodged teeth, which is not good news for Gaff there. Um, really is one of the one of the lowest acts I think we've seen in the football field for a long time. Off the ball, Brayshaw's an 18-year-old kid, which definitely makes this all look a lot worse for, for Gaff here. Throwing, throwing the hook, and um, we've seen during the week that prominent uh, lawyers out of Perth, like Tom Percy, has come out and they've said that they've seen people go to jail for less than what they've seen here on the football field. Um, what do you make of the act there by, by Gaff and all of the talk around um, whether people should be able to be sent to court for actions in the football field? Obviously, really disappointing to see something like that from um, from anyone, you know, a football player or not. And um, there is a bit of form there. So Lee Matthews, back in the day, was uh, charged by the police for breaking someone's jaw. So it can happen um, just because it happens on the football field. Obviously, not immune to the laws of uh, society there. Um, I don't think that's what will happen. I think he'll just, yeah, copy suspension, which will be quite lengthy and, and moving into next season. Um, a bit more interesting, though, with him out of contract, might have cost himself a bit of money here. Yeah, definitely in that free agency market. He was, along with Tom Lynch, the uh, big name that's floating around for people to get. And I definitely think clubs will be turned off with the, the PR backlash they'd get from grabbing uh, Gaff at this stage. And definitely for clubs that are wanting to go for him, the more clubs in the race and the more that they were they were wanting him would dictate his pay packet at the end of the day and the length of his contract. So definitely an interesting situation there for both whether he's re-signed by West Coast and equally whether other clubs are still interested in getting his services over the off-season. One interesting aspect out of all this uh, that could come to fruition is the red card system that sort of was talked about a bit. Even we discussed it earlier on the podcast when Jeremy Cameron um, had his hit on Harris Andrews there and obviously Harris Andrews had to sit out the rest of the game and quite a few weeks there. The talk of a red card system whereby a, a player would get sent off the ground if they've deemed to have performed an act uh, that's obviously like something like this where it's very severe, um, high impact, intentional sort of. And yeah, something that the umpire deems worthy of sending them off for. Um, something that Gill has said was probably unlikely for next season. So we're probably not going to see it next year. But I think it's something that they should look at to bringing in um, in the coming seasons just because of the potential to have someone ruled out, um, especially in, say, a finals game where you're not really going to suffer too many immediate consequences for taking out an opposition player. Yeah, definitely. We know that the players have started to sort of get behind this with Nathan Jones from Melbourne coming out during the week and saying he supports it. And definitely the finals thing that you mentioned there, say in a grand final, if you know, if we're talking about someone knocking out Gaff, say, would this conversation be a bit different where somebody's walked up and put the best player on another team out for the rest of the match? And uh, I think that the red card system in that sort of circumstances is probably looked on favorably by most people. So I'd be surprised if Gil doesn't uh, look at this situation again and um, see whether maybe next year or in the coming years they'll bring in a system such as that. Definitely something I think that the AFL should be looking at. Um, I'm told, Liam, that there's also a bit of interesting news uh, coming out about some potential, perhaps, lies surrounding this scenario. Yeah, definitely interesting hearing the words coming out of the key members of West Coast after this incident. First of all, there was the coach, um, Simpson, came out and said that he wasn't sure whether it was intentional or not by Gaff, which I think is a ridiculous thing to come out and say after the match. And we also had the CEO, I believe it was, of West Coast come out and say that he thinks that, you know, these two are friends and they were playing on the golf course with uh, Hamish Brayshaw and Gaff and... um, 
Andy Brayshaw as well, all playing golf together two days before the incident, so they're actually friends and he wouldn't have meant to cause this sort of harm. And then over the last uh, probably 24 hours, we've had both Pavlich and uh, Thompson, the AFL.com writer, coming out and saying that that just absolutely did not happen at all. Yeah, a bit of a weird one. Um, I'm not really sure why you'd make something like that up. Um, you're probably going to get found out pretty quickly, as it seems like they have. So, um, yeah, interesting situation all around and, uh, yeah, very interesting choice to go making up a story like that. Yeah, I think that it would just... Why would he think that they wouldn't just ask Brayshaw and it'd just be like, no, that we didn't do that. I, I just don't see how else they thought this was going to play out. And I also hear that you were saying that uh, that CEO had a few comments in a previous match where they saw at the waffle level a punch thrown and he had some particularly strong comments about punches on the football field. Yeah, the CEO of, of West Coast came out a few years ago commenting on a, a waffle game um, where someone struck someone to the jaw and, and broke their jaw, I believe. And yeah, his comments were along the line of um, anyone who does this should be deregistered immediately and yeah, not, not be playing the game anymore. So um, he was asked about that comment and he said that it was a different scenario. Um he was pressed as to how it was a different scenario, and he sort of just brushed off the question. So, um, yeah, not doing too good a job at the uh, defense here, I don't think, West Coast. <laughs> yeah, a bit different when it's your style player, I think. There. It'll be interesting to see how the rest of this pans out for Gaff and for West Coast. We've had some trade rumors come out during the week of a few players and a few different clubs. Yeah, better news for West Coast here. Um, there's reports that Cali is weighing up whether he wants to accept a $1.5 million offer over three years from them. Um Obviously, we have mentioned before on the podcast, he's quite the player who's seen as a potential to go home to Western Australia from homesickness. He's got some young kids, uh, including twins. So there's always the chance that that's going to come to fruition at the end of the season. Yeah, very interesting. We know that both Fremantle and West Coast were keen for his services and Geelong thought that they were actually going to keep him over recent weeks. They thought that they were close to signing a new contract with him. So to see this much money drop down by West Coast on what is a a first-year player um, is very interesting and we'll see what sort of rebuttal offers will come from Geelong to see whether he will stay or he will go. I assume it will be a combination of the money, the length of the contract and how much he really does want to go home. So it's a very interesting for these numbers to, to come out and I think it's really back on a 50-50 of whether he'll go or not. We do know here on the podcast, Lee, that you love a uh, trade rumor that involves the Saints and this week we've heard that Daniel Hanabry has been offered a five-year deal. Yeah, very interesting one here. Um, Hanabry, obviously, over 2015, 2016, uh, was one of the best players in the comp. I think he finished top five in the Brownlow, averaging 30 touches and really looked like a a player that was going to go really far and go for one of the best in the comp. And that earned him a really big pay packet from Sydney, actually. He's currently on $800,000 a year and he'll be contracted on that number for another three years. So, there's a bit of a squeeze that's coming on Sydney at the moment. They're trying to pay a few different players. They've obviously got Heaney and these types coming up the rank. They've got Jake Lloyd, who's going to be up for a large contract negotiation or potentially leave the club. So there's a squeeze coming on some of these players. And Saints have looked at Hanabry and think that maybe even though he's had a disappointing year with injury, that they could get him back on track. So it's a very interesting one considering that he was so good and is still quite young, 27. And what it, what what do you think it'd be worth on the trade table there? I think it seems like the the scenario is a bit of a salary dump um, on Sydney's end. So, yeah, I think the Saints will be interested here partially because they think they can get a good deal on the trade table. Yeah, we've got the 
We've got to pay 105% of our salary cap this year because we've paid unders for the last couple of years. So we've got a bit of money there to burn. It'll be interesting to see whether um, on Sydney's end it would be the sort of thing where they would pay a little bit of the contract for a bit of a better um, draft pick coming out of the trade or whether they'd rather have somebody absorb all of this contract and be able to take sort of a lesser pick in return. But very interesting one to hear that probably both Hanbury being a Victorian boy Sydney having to get rid of the money off their books. All parties seem to be, you know, partial to a bit of a conversation here. Yeah, from what I'm hearing, this one's essentially a done deal. He will be coming back to Victoria at the end of the year. I'm not confirmed that it will be the Saints, but expect Daniel Hanabry to be playing football in Victoria next season. Big scoop there. We've also got other news from back here in Victoria where, not trade news, but Silk Burgoyne signing on for another year and could potentially, uh, if he plays enough games next year, go past Adam Goods for the most games in the AFL by an Indigenous player there. Yeah, huge uh, news there if he does manage to achieve that feat would be obviously an incredibly impressive one and one that would be well-deserved. He's still playing some great footy, played a, a really good game on the weekend and was instrumental in getting that win for Hawthorne. From some good news over to some bad ones, we've had a a few injuries come out of the weekend that's going to see some players sit out most likely the rest of the year. Got some handbone issues there for Darcy Moore, Tom Hickey and Will Schofield who all look like they might miss large chunks of time if not the rest of the year. Yeah, in addition to those three, also Brett Delidio had a few calf issues on the weekend, something that he's had reoccurring and could see him sitting out at least a few games, if not the rest of the season. Yeah, I don't think it's come out fully how bad that is, but he was definitely spending a large chunk of that game on the GWS bench. It was actually quite funny watching some of that game because they had a 90-point lead and they had Green come off injured, they had Delidio off injured. I think uh, their ruckman Dawson Simpson hurt his ankle and he came off and they had some other ones and they were playing with no bench uh, and they're up by 90 points and then they had a couple of other players come off a bit sore so they sat them down and played with only 16 men against 18 and extended that 90 point lead up to 105 by the end of the match yeah depressing use of Carlton um, <laughs> that uh yeah apparently 16 could beat 18 but um yeah I guess cue in the rack for both teams at the end there and they've just managed to kick a few late goals um yeah, pretty depressing for uh, Carlton if um, 16 players can get the better of your 18 and uh, obviously extend that lead there by 15 points. But uh, on the other hand, some great news for GWS. Uh, Aiden Bonner, who we talked about last week, uh, had a really good debut there. Obviously, a pretty easy game to debut in, but he did quite well. He had 16 touches and managed to kick through two goals in addition to six tackles and three marks. He looked really good. Yeah, looked up to the standard, didn't he? He just is that bigger body who's probably ready to play AFL compared to some of the draftees, and he really showed it on the weekend, as you said, those tackles. So when he was around the contest, he was sort of just bobbing up and down and getting getting around the contest all the time. And to kick two goals on debut, it just shows that he is that X-Factor player and has the potential to be something really special. We ran through a few players last week who were playing uh, either their first game or their first game in a while last week. One of them was Alex Johnson, who also had a pretty good game. He managed 15 touches, 11 marks and four tackles, and really just picked up where he left off six years ago. Yeah, six years ago, and to come in and get 11 marks is, is, is fantastic for a backman. He played really well, I think. He really just didn't miss a beat, slipped back into that back line. And it's always funny, these teams that get these players back over over long layoffs, it's it's interesting to see how the dynamic of the club changes and, you know, people putting together best 22s. It looks a bit better with these sort of uh, good names in, in the place of some younger players that would normally be taking that position. Speaking of, Brody Smith made his return for the Crows and 
He looked a little off the pace, I think. He had 14 touches, four marks and three tackles. He'll be better for the run. Better for the run, I think. We're used to seeing him, you know, speeding off the halfback and collecting a lot more of the pill than what he did in that first match. But we know that showdowns are usually high intensity and it's hard hard match to come back to. So I'll be watching him closely this week to see if he can pick up his output there. And the last player that we had a close attention to last week on the podcast, Liam, was your boy Nathan Freeman. Uh, how'd he do? Yeah, 19 touches, one mark, and three tackles for him. It was sort of an underwhelming 19 touches. To be honest, I was there at the ground watching him a lot. It's just funny to see those sort of players where he sort of, you know, had his arms out calling for every ball, used to being the best sort of player on the ground, so he's demanding the ball all the time and sort of has to realize that at this level, you know, he's not that player anymore and he he can't get it every chance he gets. But it was good to see him running through. He did a few nice things without being overly impressive. So I'll wait to see him hopefully keep his spot over the next few rounds and really flourish in that wing role that he was playing with predominantly in that match. So you mentioned you were at the game uh, on the weekend. Uh, You would have seen one of the big performances we had this week. We had quite a few, but um, I didn't see the game myself, but I'm told Seb Ross had the football on a string. Yeah, really the only Saints player that seemed to be doing anything. He had 40 touches and kicked three early goals, which I'm pretty sure there was one point where we had five or six goals and three of them was Ross, and he had our most touches too. So he was one of the only players that can hold their head up high there for the Saints, and he was sort of going toe-to-toe with the Bont, who was allowed to do whatever he wanted, kicking four goals in that match too. We had quite a few players this week pump out some pretty big performances. I think the biggest of all was probably Josh Kelly's 41 touches. He managed to score 205 supercoach points as well, so the rare double ton there, I think it's the first one this season. Yeah, fantastic. It's crazy. It's joining elite company there. It's only a few, you know, your buddies, your your Ablets, your Goods, your John O'Browns. There's only a few players who, who've been able to get to the double ton. So Kelly's already stamped himself as what? Is he 23 or so at the moment? Young player. And Chris Judd's come out during the week and said that he thinks that Kelly's the best player in the game at the moment. Would you agree with that? Or do you think that he's still got a bit of development to go? Yeah, I think it's a fair argument. Obviously, he had these growing issues earlier in the season, um, had a bit of time off. And then since he's come back, at least over that period, I think he's probably got a claim to being the best in the AFL. Some of the other players with a claim to that title really faced off against each other in that Hawthorne and Essendon match where we saw Mitchell rack up 43 touches, almost being uh, bettered by Zach Merritt, who got 41 himself. Yeah, as we know, Mitchell does this pretty much every week. He's had probably, I don't even know I'm making this up, he's probably got to have had at least five or ten games so far this year where he's, he's cracked that 40 touches mark. And uh, obviously very impressive from Zach Merritt to do that too, having struggled earlier in this season with a few injuries. I think another player that sort of has a claim to the best player of the week is a young boy from your Lions, Hugh McCluggage. I've been really impressed with him this year and his ability to step into that midfield and really up his output. 26 touches and three goals, including one of the goals of the round there in that match. Um, You would have been watching him very closely. Yeah, really great goal by Hugh. Managed to put that one through the boundary um, out of nowhere. And as you mentioned, he's managed to put through through three for the game and have 26 touches. Um, he's done really well this week, and he's had really consistent uh, performances this season, especially since the bye. Um, joined by Jared Berry as well, who also had a great game on the weekend, and very impressed with how quickly um, McCluggage has been able to put together what is basically a complete game um, for him now, both inside and outside football. I, I thought it would take him a bit longer with his build to, to build that contested ball-winning ability, but he's shown that he's sort of that Pendlebury type where he just gets in and seems to have extra time and yeah, couldn't be happier with how he's tracking along. 
from all of your really talented young bunch there, the under 21 year olds that we went through in our rebuilding list podcast a few weeks ago. You've got, you know, your, your Andrews, your Hipwoods, your Berries, McCluggages, Rayner, Witherden. Where do you think McCluggage ranks in that list in terms of if you could only sign up a few of them? Which ones do you think would have the, the best career when all said and done? Because I'm starting to think McCluggage could even be the best of the lot. Yeah, difficult to answer, obviously, depending on how you weigh up your key positions. Hipwood and, and Andrew against the midfielders there. But out of that midfield posse that we're talking about, McCluggage, Berry, Rayner, possibly Witherden if he's moving to the midfield there later, I think um, it's it's between Rayner and McCluggage in terms of who's... And unsurprising, obviously, the high draft picks there. But I think it's between those two in terms of who will go on to reach the highest heights. Um, I think McCluggage is going to be probably more consistent than Cam Rayner. But Rayner probably has the highest ceiling in terms of the things that he can do on the football field that, that the others just can't. Well, I'm asking you the difficult questions. I was watching a bit of the uh, Melbourne match on the weekend with some friends and we saw Clayton Oliver rack up 31 touches and kick two goals and a debate went around the room of if you could take one of Oliver and uh, Paddy Cripps, who would be your pick if you're starting starting your new club or if you're getting a trade into your club, looking at who will have the best career when it's all all closed up and you know who's more likely to win a Brownlow and who's the better player. Do you have a selection between the two very talented youngsters? I like Oliver more. I'm not necessarily saying I'd pick him in this uh, one-on-one comparison, but I do like him more as a player. Um, I liked him in his draft year. I was hoping we would nab him. Unfortunately, went to Melbourne. He was a, a Brisbane supporter growing up. He's a ranger, so he looks a bit like Michael Voss there, so I was very keen <laughs> on him. Um, I think Cripps might be shading him at the moment in terms of who I would pick. He's got that little bit of a bigger body. Seems to be slightly more dangerous up forward, despite what we did see from Oliver on the weekend. Although Oliver, I think, is one year, possibly two years younger. Yeah, so he's, he's younger, only in his third year, Oliver. Like, that's just insane sort of stuff to see. He probably had the best second-year numbers we've ever seen last year, averaging 30 touches and seven tackles or something along those lines in your second year is is obscene. But at the same time, Cripps is doing it by himself in Carlton's team. He's not getting any help. He's not getting the, the tap-downs from, from Gorn or anything. So I think it is an interesting debate, and I think one everyone will be watching closely in many years to come. Yeah, just to add on to that, I think... At a certain point, obviously, skills aside, it, it does sort of matter and it, it does tend to become apparent that the, the best players in the comp at the moment are sort of have that bigger body, so Fife, Dangerfield, Martin. And yeah, it's I think Cripps probably has the advantage there. Also, the same reason why I, I just mentioned that I think Rayner probably has the higher ceiling than McCluggage. It's just that large body seems to be the trend at the moment in terms of midfields are getting larger and it's helpful to have that sort of 190 centimeter, 90 kilogram prototype body that we're seeing these days. And it'd be a miss to talk about the best performances of the week if we didn't touch on Buddy Franklin's six goals four, pretty much on one leg at the moment with his bruised heel, really not training as we've heard. But um, that performance was fantastic. Do you think it was a Buddy turning it on or are we a bit worried about Collingwood's defense at the moment? I hope it was Buddy turning it on because he's sitting in my Supercoach team. I'm unfortunately this week sitting on the <laughs> bench because I uh, made the call that Buddy was too injured and that Ahern was going to score well following off from last week uh, up against the Lions. I thought he did pretty well. Um, he scored 30 and <laughs> Buddy know. scored 178, Ooh. something like that. No, 40 versus 178, so cost himself 138 points there. And, uh, yeah, still scored pretty well and managed to rise up a little bit in the rankings, but, yeah, cost myself uh, a bit of a big jump. Yeah, scored in the 2500s, if I'm not mistaken. You would have been almost at the 2700 if you played Buddy. Yeah, so 25, 50 odd, something like that. And yeah, would have been looking at a 2,700 odd um, and a, a bit of a rise. I think I rose from 
five thousandth to four thousand seven hundredth, but yeah, probably would have maybe even cracked the four K mark if I'd have left Buddy on the field. So we'll move on to some of the coaches' votes from the week and uh, the totals for the year. We see that Tom Mitchell's regained the lead there with eighty six, really shading uh, Gorn on eighty, Cripps on seventy eight, and Oliver on seventy two. Those two boys that we just talked about. Um, where do you see the votes there, and do you think that? sort of mirrors what you've seen throughout the year and do you think this is sort of how it will go down come Brownlow night as well? Not too surprised here to see Tom Mitchell um, leading. He seems to be doing it every week at these days and, and Gorn as well. Um, seems to be performing week in, week out. Cripps obviously we know has pretty little competition for votes and as we mentioned before he's sort of carrying the Carlton team so again not surprised to see him in third place there. Um, a little surprised to see Oliver up there on, on 72. I would have thought there's quite a few Melbourne midfielders who uh, bobbing up for votes week in, week out. So for him to be on 72, I think, is very impressive. Um, in terms of the Brownlow, I'm I'm still holding out for that year where we see a non-midfielder win it. So I'm, I'm hoping for Gorn or potentially even Brody Grundy to win it this year. Yeah, the next few cabs off the rank there were Gaff on 65 and Grundy and Higgins there on 64 votes. So coming a little bit behind the first names that we read, but definitely Grundy and Gorn to be both up that high has really highlighted how well they've played this year. Not so sure they'll get the Brownlow votes. I think it's actually come out during the week that the AFL's finally said that the umpires do look at stat sheets after the game before they vote, which has always been what we assumed has happened, but I don't think has ever been said. But I think it's finally starting to come out that that's actually how it is. Do you think that probably works in Mitchell's favour? Probably does. He puts up those huge numbers on the stat sheet um, every week in terms of possessions, clearances, um, tackles, score assists, all, all the things that the umpires are probably looking for. Yeah, I think it's hard to not vote for someone when they have, you know, 45 touches every game. We'll move on to the upcoming games for the week and do some tips, and we've got the model running again. The model didn't have the best week last week, all close games and a lot of upsets really sort of threw it a bit on the first time we were running the margins. I um, think it came out with 5 out of 9 for the week, and you and I are both sitting there with 6 out of 9, so a pretty tough week for tipsters. Yeah, obviously... Obviously, quite a few games this week where it could have gone either way and tipsters would have been annoyed if they were on the wrong side of a few of those close ones. So this week might be a bit of a nicer one for tipsters, a lot of probably easier matches than last week. On Friday night, we've got Essendon taking on St Kilda on the Friday night at Etihad Stadium. Um, The model says that this will be a pretty one-sided affair. It's tipping Essendon by 25 points. Are you going for the Dons as well? Yeah, I think so. Um, St Kilda don't really look too likely to nab a win against anyone, I think, uh, at this point in time. The Doggies game was possibly their best chance for one before the end of the season, and I think Essendon will have them covered on Friday night. Yeah, I think this one could get a bit ugly too after what I saw at the game last week, hoping for a bit of a bounce back from the club. But yeah, I think Essendon's really likely to get this win. So the line uh, with the bookies, 28.5 on this one, so the model tipping a slightly closer game there. Next up, we've got um, the game that's always close, the Hawthorne and Geelong game at the MCG. We always see this one go down to the wire. Um, The model also thinking it'll be close with a one-goal win to the Cats. Yeah, pretty much agreeing with what the bookies have here. They've got a line of 5.5 for the Cats, so that's essentially the exact same thing, considering they need to be on on a 0.5 there. And Yeah, I think that sounds about right. I, I would imagine that the Hawks will be up by one point and the Cats will kick a goal in the last second or after the siren or something. Um. I'm going to tip the Cats as well. Yeah, I'll go with you. That's three tips there for the Cats in what should be a really exciting game to start off Saturday football. Next up, we've got Gold Coast taking on the Richmond Tigers, and the model is tipping the Tigers in a blowout by 59 points. Yeah, pretty similar to what the bookies have here. They've got it at 65.5. Uh, 
11 goals versus 10 goal margin for the model seems pretty standard that the Tigers are going to do this one easily and have got my tip. Yeah, mine too. I think that should be a pretty easy match and a, a bit of a training drill there for the Tigers. The next game up is Port versus West Coast, and the model's actually deviated from the bookies here. They've got a relatively close game, 15.5 points in Port's favour, and the model really rates Port, especially at home, so it's got a 35-point margin on this one. Yeah, very interesting one. I'm surprised that the bookies' odds aren't a lot longer because we know there's definitely not going to be gaff in that team, and travelling down to Port Adelaide after this week might be might be one where the team's a bit rattled, and uh, yeah, I expect Port to win this in a pretty large margin. I'll also be tipping Port in this game. Um, next up, we have the Giants hosting the Adelaide Crows at the University of New South Wales. Uh, the model's pretty similar here with the bookies. They've got them by 16.5 points, and the model's saying 23. Yeah, very interesting match because the Crows have been in some fantastic form, finally got their full team back in, and they've hit their straps. But I really expect the Giants to be a really dark horse with finals this year. I think they're in fantastic form as well, and I expect the Giants to win here. I'm also going to go with the Giants at home. I think they can get it done and secure that top four spot that they'll desperately be craving. Next up, we've got the Pies and the Lions at Etihad Stadium for some reason. And the model really thinks that the Pies are likely to get up with 33 points as its margin there. Yeah, four goals uh, with the bookies line, 24.5 points. Um, so they're giving the Lions a bit more of a chance there. Um, I think we're a sneaky chance. So I'm going to tip us. Just uh, Yeah, just I like tipping us when I do think we're a chance. Didn't really rate our chances against North, um, despite being at home. Turned out that we were a pretty good chance. <laughs> um, but yeah, I rate our chances here against the Pies. Just don't really rate the Pies, and I'm hoping we can knock them out of the top eight. I reckon if uh, Hipwood can get on top of the lack of the defenders there and kick six and you're in with a shot, but I think I'm going to go for Collingwood myself. Um, down here in Melbourne, I'll side with them. Six goals, I think, are actually going to be kicked by Dan McStay. Lock Ooh, it in. Dan yep. McStay, that's a huge call. Move on to Sunday action where we've got North Melbourne taking on the Dogs in probably what will be one of the closest matches of the round at Etihad Stadium. Yeah, close game according to the model. It's got the ruse by five. The bookies are, I think, not so close. So they're going four goals for North Melbourne. I think North should win and uh, it'll be interesting to see. We might do a bit of a analysis next week on whether our model's margin was able to beat the bookies' margin as like a total for all the games or something. A little bit of fun to see how well it's doing. But um, yeah, I think North should win. And I, I like that the model tipped it as a close game. Yeah, I could see this one being close. I could actually see the dogs getting up here. Um, I think they match up pretty well with North Melbourne, to be honest. But I will take the favourite and I'll stick with North. Next, we've got match of the round for mine. Melbourne taking on the Swans at the MCG. Yeah, I really like this game, and I think it could be a close one. Um, the model somewhat disagrees. It's got the Demons by 37 points. It really likes them, especially at home. Um, bumped up by a, a huge differential in marks inside 50 last week against the Suns. They had something like plus 15 or, or something that you don't really see. Pretty ridiculous there. So they've got a boost from that, and the model is, is riding pretty high on them at the moment. So 37-point margin there. Um, the bookies have got them at 21.5. Um, I'll tip the Ds. I'm going to go for a bit of an upset here and tip the Swans. I think that they're marching towards finals and maybe the Ds might be uh, wobbling a bit in these in these big matches. So I'm going to go for a bit of an upset here and tip Sydney. Very interesting. Um, the last game of the round is over in Perth. We've got Fremantle taking on Carlton. The bookies say 27.5 points. Uh, the model is a little less keen on Carlton, especially travelling. Um, it says 41 points for the Dockers. Uh, regardless, I'm taking the Dockers. Yeah, I'm taking the Dockers too. I think they should do this pretty easily at home. 
We'll move on to closing the show now with a big talking point of the week. And I saw some interesting stats here, which is one of the reasons why I did tip Sydney over Melbourne. That are, I don't know if you've if you've uh, come across these, but it's the wins and losses for Melbourne this year and the current top eight and the wins and losses that Melbourne have had means that they haven't beaten a top eight side this year. We were talking a lot about uh, Collingwood not doing this earlier in the year, but as it all sits at the moment, closing into finals, Melbourne's the team that hasn't beaten a club that's likely to make the top eight. So interesting one there. Um, Pi's only top eight win is against Melbourne. Um, so Sydney was sitting eighth on the weekend when the, when they played, so they were unable to get over the top eight side there. Um, yeah, this one's a bit of a surprise for me because I really like uh, Melbourne's chances this year. Um, I think they can go deep into finals. So the top eight as it stands is the Tigers, Eagles, GWS, the Hawks, Pies, Port and the Swans. And at the moment, the losses that Melbourne has seen this year come at the hands of the Cats, the Hawks, Pies, Port and the Tigers, as well as the Saints. And the wins that they've been able to grab are against the Suns, the Crows, the Dogs, Brizzy, North, Essendon, St Kilda, the Blues and Fremantle. So quite a favourable draw there actually for Melbourne. They got from that top bracket the Crows who have been very poor this year and they were able to beat them quite convincingly. And most of their other games came against clubs that are really down the bottom of the ladder. And every time they have had a chance to play these top eight sides like the Tigers, the Cats, the Hawks, Pies and Port, they've they've lost all of those matches actually. So quite an interesting stat to come out there and it'll be It'll be really fascinating to see um, how they go for the rest of the year and whether they make finals, and if they do, how they're able to perform. Yeah, really surprised by that stat. Um, would have thought they'd have knocked off a few top eight sides by now. I've been pretty high on them for a while, and so is the model. I guess, though, that's largely built off their ability to take marks inside 50 and uh, and convert those to scores against those lower sides. Um, as we can see, they've got a, a pretty good percentage, sitting about 200 points ahead of the next closest team for points scored, and yeah, I guess that's the back off the back of beating up on some of these lesser sides uh, multiple times, like the Suns and uh, and Carlton. Yeah, it's interesting because you've been very high on them throughout the year, and as you said, the model has been pretty hot on them as well. But I've been sort of on the other side, hoping they were the you know the new Richmond who's sort of bobbing up and around and looking really good, but not really making the grade at the moment. They're in in sort of a struggle situation where they they might not necessarily even make the finals at this stage because. For their last final three games of the year, they've got the Swans at the MCG, the Eagles over in Perth, and then the GWS Giants at the MCG. All three are top eight sides, and if this trend continues and they lose all three of those games, they'll finish around ninth spot again, and I don't think they'll be making finals. Yeah, so I'm going to back them in here. I think they're going to win at least one, um, probably two of these games. They're going to make the finals, and I, I still think that they've got the potential to go quite deep in the finals. I think their best football is... Is up there with the best footy in the competition. It'll be interesting to see this week because probably the Swans is going to be the easiest match for them to win out of these three. And if they so happen to lose it, I think it'll be interesting to see if they start to get a bit worried, if they start to get a bit nervous on the field because that trip to Perth is quite a hard one. And in that last game, I really think that looking at the matches, GWS might be playing that final match for a top four spot actually. So it won't be like they'll be taking that last game lightly and if Melbourne lose these first two, it might be a match there in the last round to see if Melbourne can make finals and whether GWS can make top four and only one will be able to sort of happen. So I reckon these last three rounds of footy will be very interesting. I heard during the week that apparently there are still 13 teams in the race that really have a good chance of finishing in that top eight. So another really even year and um, it'd be interesting to see some of these crunch matches come the next three weeks. 
Yeah, it's going to be great three weeks of football. As you said, lots of teams still with the chance to make finals. And then for the teams who aren't, there's obviously the uh, potential to play for draft picks and obviously uh, see whether anyone wants to tank there at the end of the season. But yeah, it'll be really interesting to watch the Melbourne Demons over the next month or so and um, see if they can get that win this week against the Swans, which, as you mentioned, will be really a catalyst for how they shape that final eight or fall outside of it. Yeah, very interesting to hear you talking about the uh, play for draft picks and not necessarily the tanking, but just where all these teams finish because everyone will be noticing that Gold Coast are near the bottom and they'll likely get a pick after their first pick for the Tom Lynch compensation, who's inevitably leaving, which means that could be the situation for, say, a St Kilda, where if the match coming up between Gold Coast and Brisbane, if Brisbane win that, then uh, the Saints find themselves behind Gold Coast, so their pick gets pushed back to like a pick four or something. But if Gold Coast wins, they're sitting there with a pick three before that Gold Coast double pick. So I'll definitely be watching Gold Coast very closely to see where they finish for the rest of the year. Yeah, from a Brisbane perspective, that game against Gold Coast is, as you mentioned, going to be the difference between probably pick two and pick five for us. So uh, obviously I'd rather the win and, and pick five, I think, still going to get a quality player there. But it would be very interesting to see how fired up Gold Coast are or whether they're sort of more worried about protecting their draft position at this stage. Although that may be redundant once the Lions roll the pies this weekend. We've got a great weekend of footy coming up and hopefully the model can do us proud and potentially beat the bookies margins for these games this weekend. And yeah, we'll let you know how that goes next weekend on the Science of Footy podcast. <laughs>